if everybody in a particular discipline is pretending to understand some concept that's essential to the whole discipline, if everybody is pretending to understand, and it goes along like that for a long time, and someone comes along who does understand it, and who starts discussing it, and who ends up using very different terminology from the, the terminology that they've been using, as they pretended to understand, as a consequence, they're going to reject it. And it won't be for causal reasons. It'll be mostly because it just doesn't sound like what sounds like science to them. Now, keep in mind, they may genuinely believe they have an understanding. The atmosphere is very complex. No one disputes that. And the potential is there for getting it completely wrong. And the potential is there for that completely wrong understanding to become widely accepted. And it may be because there's an absence of, of evidence that clearly indicates what the right understanding is. Or it may be that they've already started down the path of a, of a wrong understanding, and therefore all the evidence is interpreted through the lens of that wrong understanding. And so there may be a, a right understanding that's right there in front of us, and we just don't know it. And that's especially st true when it comes to storms, because widely recognized to be, to be poorly understood. That's true even despite the fact that meteorologists represent themselves as being the end-all authority, and that they would, many of them would say they have the problem solved, and they wouldn't provide much details beyond that, which kind of tells you that they may genuinely believe it, in the same sense people believe many different things and that's not to say that they're being dishonest or anything like that because they or at least not intentionally so when you're in such a context it's not like you really even start out on something such as this understanding the atmosphere with the idea that you're really going to be successful because you can just look into the history and see the current thinking and how it seems so completely confused in some cases but in other cases you can't think of anything better than it and so it's very very frustrating trying to deal with whether or not all the experts really do understand or are they just pretending? And as you go along, I came to realize little by little that they were just pretending, many of whom believed they understood something deep about the atmosphere, but pretending nonetheless. Now, it doesn't really mean that much. It's not that important that they were uh, pretending, at least not in retrospect, but it sure made it a lot harder. It sure made it a lot harder because you know, any human being is constantly told that that's all there is to it. It works so simply. We got it all figured out. You hear these kind of phrases over and over and over again, and most people don't really care about the problem that much anyways. And that's what I came to realize is that most people don't care that much about it. So I'm not going to really even pay any attention to what most people say about this. I would only, you know, I would pay attention to other people, but only if they could at least demonstrate that they were really, that this is something they thought deeply about. And I knew already that anyone who thought deeply about the atmosphere, who acted like they had it all figured out, was just an idiot. There is a very simple, straightforward uh, understanding that if you take it word verbatim from meteorologists, you can have like a, um, a ready string of phrases that you say at certain points to always come back around to making the convection model look like it stands out. And really just marketing, it's meaningless and it just makes it easy for people to pretend like they understand something. And, and people like that, you know, people like that. And that's not unlike someone reading part of the Bible, let's say, and be able to say, hey, I can bring some meaning into this conversation and therefore I'm a more valuable person, that kind of thing. And that's what you really kind of get from meteorological uh, literature that discusses the physics of storms, the things you can say to a discussion of any experiments. And, and that's not at all something they would even design. They'd even point out that one of their little things is, hey, you know, you can't put the atmosphere in a test tube. Of course, it's true, but it, they take so full advantage 
and you realize how deep that is, and you realize that, hey, you know, there's no reason for this person not to talk about this subject, which is essential to their model. There's no reason for them not to talk about it unless they were suspected it maybe isn't true, you know? And what you'll find, though, is there's certain things that they just won't discuss. Be like, how, how do I put this? I'm Catholic, so I'll make this neutral from my perspective anyway. Someone coming coming to discuss with me the, the Inquisition in the, in the Catholic role and how terrible it is. Well, of course, I'm going to be defensive, right? And, and that's that's how it is in this. And this thing, too, is is they it, it spins off some emotion and it gets people to be defensive about certain things. And it sets you up for that. And it sets you up for being able to encapsulate your whole understanding of the atmosphere into a relatively simple analogy of a pot boiling on a stove or something to that effect. And it'll intimate that water has these energetic capabilities, these powers. And there, there might even be analogies made to like steam trains and the sound and then that to the thunder and the light, you know, that kind of a thing. Whatever the case, though, it's attributable in their model to water. And that's what they want you to accept. They want you to accept that within water, there are these hidden powers, and these hidden powers, uh, one of them being buoyancy, the other one being latent heat, are there to not only facilitate the transfer of energy in the atmosphere and therefore do cooling, as happens in storms. Exactly how that happens, they don't really go into detail. They kind of intimate it, it happens. It's, who knows, because there's there's any number of different claims. There's no, there's no, like, simple scenario here. Trust me, there's all kinds of little details that you can ask questions about if you want, but you'll just never uh, quite get answers to them. And um, so they have this idea that water has these properties and, and these properties. Well, here's let's put this in the context of how an engine, a car engine can be thought of as being a, an analogy for what happens in a storm. And so in this case, you would say, well, how would someone who religiously follows the convection model, how would they? How would they describe the different parts of the engine? If you remember, there's the fuel. That's where the energy is, right? There's the the containment structure that allows work to take place. And that's number two. And then there, number three is there is exhaust. And that's also part of the equation. So the energy would be water. Think of that. The energy of their motor for understanding the mechanics of the atmosphere is water. If you remember in my model, the energy was differential pressure differential air pressure over diff from different places in the planet to other places a difference in pressure that's what is the that is what is the energy of the engine in my model whereas the energy of the engine in this convection model this traditional one the one that they all claim they believe is water they're suggesting it's almost like a fuel i guess you would say you know it's hard to really say they're at least suggesting that it that it some has some amazing ability to transfer energy from one place to the other as it moves you know, regardless of whatever is causing it to move, it, it also it has these other abilities to transfer these large amounts of energy. That's what they're claiming. Now, in my model, here this, here's what really distinguishes our respective models. In my model, water is the source of the structure. Water is the source of the structure, and it manifests itself in vortices, which themselves are the result of the spinning of nano droplets on wind shear boundaries. So since my model uses water as the basis of the structure and also suggests that flow, flow has to be 
contained. Otherwise, it'll just go everywhere and it'll disperse and there won't be any flow to see. There won't be a flow, right? If you don't have it in some kind of container. In this plasma, that H2O-based plasma that does spin up is that container. And in a sense, to substantiate that is the fact that one of the things we'd expect from this is to be a relatively inefficient process. So it's going to be spitting out a lot of residuals and that's probably going to produce clouds. So in my model, clouds are evidence of vortex activity and vortex activity is something facilitated by moisture in the air and it has to do with the plasma that has to do with the spinning of H2O molecules. And that's a pretty complex model, but nevertheless, the water is the structure in my model. In their model, the structure, well, that's the thing. Their model doesn't really have any structure, or at least not very explicitly. They claim that vortices are an aberration and not really central to flow, which is, of course, a completely different idea than my model. In my model, when you see a vortice, a tornado, you're seeing something that's extremely common up at the top of the troposphere, but that has is hidden from us for all number of reasons. Whereas in their model, when you see that, you're seeing something that's rare and only occurs on the ground and isn't something, that, you know, isn't even instrumental in anything above or anything like that. Well, they simply don't really have structure in their model. And the funny thing is, though, if you hear them talk and then you hear them even observing a storm and talking about the structure in it tornado there's something structural going on there the the cone of a vortice it being so it's just basically blatant evidence of structure now they don't see it that way they have other ideas of structure and the only one i've been able to find in their model is something called the dry layer uh, capping effect or dry layer uh, structural integrity is what they refer to it is is the only words I could use to refer to it and it's the the notion that dry layers have structural integrity now does that make sense in any way not really no because gases have no structure that's what a gas is you know if, if there was any forces pulling those things together they wouldn't be bouncing away from each other all the time right so that's an oversimplified way of saying it itself but um, you know to just say that uh, uh, something we know is gaseous and has relatively little H2O in it is has structure without saying how like maybe you might say it's got to do with electricity that's mixed into it maybe that would be at least something and um, of course you could also mention the same thing is true in, in the moist layer itself both the, you know these aren't uh, these aren't off the table by any means but apparently to meteorologists it's not even necessary because well you know they don't really they're not going to be concerned about the lack of structure in their actual model since the analogies they use to describe it to the public provide all the structure they need <laughs> i know that sounds ridiculous but it's it's actually true. If you have structure in your analogy, even though it's not in your model. But anyways, if you did want to somehow try to pin down what's going on with structure in their model and maybe even point to a tornado and say, hey, how can you explain that structure? They might come up with something like there being holes in dry layers. And these holes allow things to funnel up through them, just like a water going through a drain. Now, getting any of them to, you know, put their name on that, on something like that, or getting any of them to point to a specific model that actually uh, took that notion seriously was just about impossible because it's just, it's like the rest of the paradigm. It's just a conversation. It doesn't mean anything. They just talk, you know, that's, that's all meteorologists do when it comes to theory or physics or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's whoever can 
talk up the best story, not stray too far from what everyone kind of thinks is the right thing, you know, and they have basic assumptions that they all agree on, you know, things like the relative weight of air, and these are all goofy notions to some degree that they won't measure because they don't really want to know the answer. The answer will show that they're, they're just greatly oversimplifying things that are... So, but yeah, so that's the case. Their model, the, um, the not the energy, but the uh, structure is maybe you could say part of the, of the dry layer, but who's to say because they're not really very clear on that, you know? And that beyond that, they just kind of use analogies to intimate the existence of, uh, of structure. And then the next step from this is, you know, what is the exhaust of their model? Well, if you remember, the exhaust of my model was the jet stream. Now, the exhaust of their model in that all these vortices tend to, to stream up and to collectivize into streams in the, in the upper part of the atmosphere, that's where the greatest low pressure, fast moving air is, right? It's just a natural thing for vortices and that's where vortices get going, get started from. So the flow of air goes up into the jet stream and join, continue to accelerate it, continue to be part of that phenomenon that in order for a jet stream to continue to be a stream, there has to be something more involved than just gases. So the effect of that stream being enabled to persist in a constant manner is a large degree a result of the continuous vortices that are that are shooting into it continuously, you know, one every couple of minutes or so. And this is a natural part of the atmosphere. That's just the way it, it operates. These things are part of, the, part of the natural flow, and they tend to go from lower places to the top of the jet stream where the air is moving very fast. As they go up, that they're essentially siphoning off energy from above, siphoning off energy to um, to pull things up that spinning tube of, of plasma that forms as it extends out. Now, in their model, I would say the exhaust is maybe just clouds all by themselves. Clouds and rain, you know, that would be their uh, idea of the end of the model. Um, they don't really explain jet streams, but that's all right because they don't really explain jets or vortices. I call vortices and jets the same thing. They can't explain vortices and therefore there's no really no need to be overly concerned about the fact that you can't explain the jet stream, which by the way is just simply the exhaust of vortices. That's all the jet stream is. It's relatively fast moving air. It's not extremely well focused, but it's somewhat focused and it's continually pushed along by the vortices come spinning up constantly. So that differentiates my model very well from theirs. My model says differential pressure is the energy. Vortices are the mechanism. They're the uh, they're the engine. They're the they're the structure, I guess you could say, through which the, the air that's in the higher pressure shoots up the vortice towards the top to where it eventually links into the jet stream and the fast moving air there. And so essentially, the work it's doing is lowering pressure from one place to the other and the, the and again, the structure by, that allows that to happen is the plasma that spins up on wind shear boundaries to produce the vortices. That is the structure. And again, uh, the, jet, you know, the jet stream is the exhaust. Now, their model is just really contrived. First of all, they're taking water and they're trying to make it a source of energy. It's just simply not a source of energy. In, in fact, as it, as it goes from smaller droplets in the lower atmosphere, very small, invisible like nano droplets that are very small and very hard because they're mostly surface tension. As it goes from those in the lower atmosphere to larger, more um, rounder uh, droplets up higher as they start to combine under lower pressure, which is what happens under lower pressure, there's less holding droplets from connecting with each other. There's less um, it, um, collisions with air molecules that are knocking, the, knocking the, the globules apart. There's less of that. So now they start to form into larger droplets. And as they do, um, their heat capacity increases. And that means the general area in the vicinity starts to get cold. And, and 
that's when uh, in that in that coldness is itself um, what's well, the result of, of liquid water appearing on the scene whereas below you had not liquid water but you had the same amount of water but it wasn't liquidity liquidity enough so all these there's all these factors going on in the atmosphere and a lot of it has to do with water and it's very unusual um, thermal characteristics it has a very high heat capacity um, but that also has to do with the fact that uh, h2o the connections that, that exist between them are highly elastic highly elastic means that these things are very amenable to energy and thus we start to get our understanding of why the relationship between energy and water exists it's because of the um, it's because of that elasticity and again that elasticity is as a result of the nature of hydrogen bond and it has to do with the fact that they um, actually get stronger at some degree of distance which is the definition of elasticity that's, a, that's exactly what elasticity is uh, which underlies all elasticity even even that in rubber bands for example you know when you pull a rubber band apart what happens it gets harder just the bonds between them increase that's what makes a rubber band rubbery the bonds between them increase as you pull them apart a little bit and the same thing happens with water on the extreme molecular scale and that's what's going on with this with these abilities that have to do with the elasticity in that there's actually to some degree greater forces at some degree of distance between these these molecules than there is when they're actually up close where you get some degree of neutralization and that's the key water neutralizes the force that brings it, the force that exists between them that brings them together and that's what is the elasticity and then on top of that water has some structural capabilities that only express themselves under shear conditions so if you put those two together you have this relationship with energy and you have you have any kind of a condition that will produce a shear will produce shear and it just so happens that spinning does that perfectly spinning of h2o nano droplets in the atmosphere um, is what allows the droplets therein to, to start to adopt a spin and to maintain that spin as they form into a plasma which essentially is the um, the stuff of, of vortices it's the stuff that allows a vortice to exist it's the um, it's the lead of a lead pipe <laughs> or so to put it um, it is the it is the container right it, it's made from the stuff that just so happens to spin up on places where there is this flow happening. And it does this because it actually, some degree, gets its energy from collisions with molecules along that flow. And thus, in a sense, wind shear itself is conserved in the tube. So we can think of the tube as a conservation of wind shear as it literally grows into its resources, which are very specific and necessary. And that has to do with there being boundary conditions between cool dry air and warm moist air those two diff two different bodies of air that share a long boundary and that are moving against each other at different speeds that's what produces the spinning which allows the um, plasma to emerge which allows there to be more of a, a of a consistent focus of flow that eventually starts to spin around itself because you're literally from that plasma you're literally getting structural capability structural hardness and that an allows you to produce something that actually avoids friction and that can potentially grow as long as it has the resources in which to grow in and that's what happens and that's why wind shear boundaries which form naturally in the atmosphere under calm conditions are so instrumental to the formation of these vortices so kind of think about that that seems like it'd be a little bit ironic but it's not. Um, calm conditions are what allow for the separation between moist air and dry air, which sets up these long moist air, dry air boundaries, which are the, um, the raw resources from which 
vortices start to grow into as they start to uh, pick up speed and thus be, start to produce their own wind shear, start becoming um, or essentially or essentially vacuum up the, the the stuff of their composition, as, and that allows them to essentially grow. And that's why when you see a, a vortice dropping out of the air, you know when you see that in some storm chasing uh, videos, you'll see this vortice up high and it starts and it seems to just drop down. Well, that's really what that is doing is that's just kind of um, growing into its resources and eventually it gets close enough to where it literally sucks into the ground and that and that could produce some very other well things can get worse from that point on because now this thing has so much leverage as it sucks up against the ground that's problems with tornadoes they have a tremendous amount of leverage that for example you can't get if you're, a, if you're out but um it's important to understand though that the vortice is itself something structural it's a real thing it's not just uh, a made-up entity